Hello, friends. Welcome to episode four of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier about his fascinating research into the life of Paul and his letter to the churches in Galatia. In today's episode, Dr. Barrier continues talking with us about why Paul may have thought that the Galatians were under some sort of spell or curse, and this letter could partly be a counter curse to help the Galatians break free from thinking that they could be righteous through being under the law. It's a riveting way to read Galatians and brings new meaning to Paul's words when he says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Dr. Barrier also talks with us about how to study the Bible and shares advice on how to choose the commentaries, biblical research tools, and scholarship to assist us in our understanding. He also shares some ways that he reads the Bible devotionally and how he personally handles some of the more complicated passages in the scriptures. And at the end of today's episode, I shared three quick takeaways from today's conversation, as well as this week's growth challenge. Okay, let's get to part two of our conversation with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier. And what was really curious to me as I started to go back and look at a history of interpretation of that passage uh, about the bewitchment or the cursing, and what you see is for over a millennia, you see both interpretations uh, all throughout the early history of the church in the Byzantine area, era, all the way up to the Middle Ages where um, people commenting on this text, some really did believe it was uh, a cursing. Others were like, mm, not so sure about that. Um, even up to Martin Luther, Martin Luther very much believed that uh, there was a demonic dimension that Paul was countering uh, in the letter, and he saw this as a, a live uh, counter curse. But what happened that was fascinating was after the Enlightenment period, so we're talking about the 1800s, early 1900s, there were several commentaries that came out that were very definitive in their historical analysis of the text, and they were certain that Paul would not be offering up a true, genuine uh, counter-curse against a curse. Why? Because Paul wouldn't have believed in such things. And so, roughly 100 years ago, we had a push away from, a heavy push away from, this idea that Paul could have been mystical about it. Uh, that he could have believed that some type of uh, spiritual or animistic type activity was happening in Galatia. And it just so happened to be, in particular, I can think of a couple examples, but there was a mainline French commentary series, a mainline German commentary series, and a mainline English commentary series, that all three were pressing the idea that Paul could not have actually believed that. And that, of course, would have ended up having a major impact on the future scholarship. And that was all, like I said, about 100 years ago. Mm. So we pushed away from it. And so I'm, I'm hoping to, to bring it back into focus and say, no, we need to look at this through an anthropological or cultural lens if, we're, if we really want to try to get at these texts. That's right. What, what has been some of the pushback about looking at it this way? I think it was just a sign of the times. Um, I think that if you go back to the Enlightenment, uh, era, uh, and this is such a broad subject, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to step too far outside okay. of you know, some of the specifics, but uh, part of it was is we were, uh, there was a, a massive uh, surge of rationalism, uh, anti-spiritualism, um, and uh, if you start looking at analyses of, of the Gospels in the mid to late 1800s, uh, they're either discounting 
what Jesus was doing in terms of miracles, or they're trying to explain it naturally, you know. Mm. And also, this is the age of uh, Darwin's writings coming in, so we're having a real strong push for natural explanations, which means that obviously it's a pretty strong response against um, biblical thinking, which was very quick to accept uh, wonder working. So when Jesus walks on the water, some scholars are trying to explain that naturally as, well, there was a, there was a sandbar mm-hmm. <laughs> under the water, you know. And, of course, that, that doesn't actually help us understand the story any better. But what I'm trying to say is that was kind of the trend, you know. Mm. Probably the most famous, I don't know if it's the most famous or not, but maybe the best example that I can think of would be Thomas Jefferson. Uh, yet the, 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 one, the very one who was involved in the formation of our country, uh, he's, he's also famous for giving us a version of the Bible in which he cut out all of the miracles. Of course, this would have been, I don't know the date of that, but we're talking around the year 1800 when it happens. And because he just couldn't come to terms as a deist, with uh, the idea of miraculous events. And so he wanted to give us sort of a purified Bible without the miracles. So this was the trend. You know, there was a strong yeah. rational trend. And intelligentsia, they, you know, they were, they were smart enough to see through some of these mystical stories and, uh, or maybe had risen above that in the industrial area that was coming on. And so it was just sort of a sign of the times, I, th- I think. How are you feeling like, working on a book for 13 years and really taking your time to make sure that this is just right. It, uh, I guess it felt really good. Uh, <laughs> it felt really good. I had actually reached a point where I guess it was 2018 that I accept, I accepted another research fellowship to travel back to Southern Germany. And the objective was to go ahead and finish it up. Um, so on the one hand, I was, trying not to allow working on that manuscript to dictate my time and my life. However, by then I thought, okay, we need to be done with this. You know, I was reaching the point that if I didn't get done immediately, then I was going to have to start reworking everything (laughs) Mm. based on new information. Oh, boy. (laughs) Finished it up, and I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be done with it and thrilled for it to be coming out. And I think what is um, what is fun and is exciting to me is uh, what's what's happening now is is seeing what the response will be, whether it be through this type of engagement or sometimes there different, there's different types of fellowships that come up or invitations of different kinds to come speak in different places. Um, my, my wife and I were fortunate after the publication of my dissertation to travel to Spain uh, for a few weeks for presentations on that and it's always a lot of fun not just the travel but the engagement with other scholars and um, it's it's always actually quite uh, surprising to me to see who is reading it why they're reading it and that usually it is very unexpected and very surprising to me i'm curious about your advice for those who are beginning to study the bible and they're seeing different works come out like your latest book, and they're wanting to be wise as they choose different pieces of scholarship to read. Um, they, they have an open mind to like, I want to see what's out there. I want to understand different viewpoints. I want to have a good perspective of the culture of the time. 
all this is going to enhance my understanding of the Bible. But I guess your advice for those who are beginning to study the Bible seriously, critically, and want to make sure that they're choosing the right types of study tools, uh, commentaries, works like you've just done, what advice do you have for them? One thing that's important to realize, and, and this is not necessarily a novel idea, but but every person who writes a book usually has some type of bias uh, going for good or for ill. It's it's a it's a neutral thing to have bias, and I think you it's important to not only worry about the selection of the books, but worry about the selection of the author too. And I don't say this from the point of view of screening authors, but to me it's kind of important to have some type of understanding about where the author might be coming from so that you can at least try to fathom what their slant will be on the subject, uh, if, that, if that makes any sense. So a good example of this is uh, a good book that basically introduces all of the New Testament and early Christian writings would be one by Bart Ehrman and where he's writing for Oxford University Press. That's really, it's a really good book. But it's also important to know that if you read some of Bart Ehrman's other writings, he's very intentional and clear about himself that he came into Christianity from a very fundamentalist background. And he not only has left Christendom, he's, he's sort of still writing about it, but from the other direction. So what does that tell you? Well, it at least gives you an idea about where he's coming from, where he's you know that he's trying to give you an alternative understanding. So to me, it's kind of like, well, you could read his, and then you could read another uh, introduction to the New Testament if you wanted a counterpart for someone who is still active in their faith, but is still just as critical about the text themselves. You could do that as well. Mark Allen Powell, He's written a good introduction uh, to the New Testament. Or uh, one of my old professors, Eugene Boring, has written a good one. Or Carl Holliday, who was a professor at Emory or has been for years. So these are, you know, what, what ends up happening is when you get two interpretations, that allows you to actually enter into a discussion or conversation. Those two books may be a little more than people would bargain for. And if that's the case, maybe you should go go to something like John Goldingay's uh, How to Read the Bible, which is going to be about that thick. It's also critical, <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's maybe one step earlier than jumping full into some of these heavier discussions. <laughs> oh, I love your advice about, like, choosing books to help open your mind and also to see different perspectives and, like, you use the word, the phrase, like entering into the discussion, like that. What a great place to like start to read the Bible, to like hear yeah. how other people are thinking about that text, different points of view. That's just going to inform your own knowledge. Yeah, I think so. And I think that um, it's it's really difficult a lot of times for students of Scripture to do that. And when I say students of Scripture, I, te I teach at a university. And so and we train ministers for churches. And so a lot of times when they come into class and I'll assign a, a, a text where the, I know on the front end that whoever's writing it is probably going to fundamentally disagree with them, uh, with a student, that is. And, and then they'll come to me about it. <laughs> and, and I'll basically say, say to them, I never had any anticipation that you would or would not agree with them. 
uh, I really wanted you to engage them uh, in, in ideas. And, uh, and then when you're done with it, you might actually uh, be closer to where they are. You may not be, but you're at least allowing your understandings or interpretations of some of these events to be challenged so that whatever you're going to communicate to other people, you'll at least have some type of uh, basis to stand on that's, that's been critical, it's been reflective. And I had a student this past spring, it was, it was a great interaction. Because we were, we were right in the middle of class, and he was being very honest uh, in a way that doesn't always happen in class. And, and, uh, and he said to me, he said, uh, Dr. Barrier, and he says, all of these people that we've been reading, and this was like this big revelation to him. He was like, they don't actually hate Christianity, do they? <laughs> and I was like, no, they don't. I was like, they are just as sincere and they are just as honest about the same text that that you're interested in. And they've come away with very different understandings of it. And it was just so mm. liberating to realize that although he didn't agree with them, that their level of interest and sincerity and genuineness was no more or less than his, you know. So that that was a, that was a fun encounter. <laughs> I also want to ask you about reading the Bible devotionally because there's mm -hmm. the there's obviously the critical side, uh, being academic and wanting to get to the root and hearing different versions and uh, different conversations around that text, and that's what you're just talking about. Super enlightening. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see how different people interpret things, and we're all getting at the we're all trying to get at the truth, and you just have different perspectives on it. Yeah. Uh, and there's also that the point where you're reading it devotionally. You're reading it to um, to understand more about God, understand like maybe how the text is speaking to you personally. I mean, I've had yeah. encounters with Shakespeare where I've like walked away like feeling touched. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, like your advice in the Bible devotionally, and maybe even your experience, like having critically studied Galatians for so long. Like, can you now go back? and actually read that devotionally, and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the, the professor I mentioned to you earlier who really led me off in the direction of pursuing Ph.D. studies, his name was Larry Welburn. One of the things that he said I really loved, whenever we would, he would, we would ask him a theology question yeah. or a question about spirituality, he would say, oh, I'm just a historian. I'm just a historian. And so, <laughs> so, uh, so prefacing my comment with, I'm just a historian. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll add, my reflections on reading these texts um, is that uh, I, I think I did have to go through a sort of a desert for a while to, to try to figure out what these texts meant. And and what was difficult for me, I think, if I could, if I'm reflecting back on it, is that now it's not such a problem, and I would describe it this way. At the time, as I was going through it, I was having problem with all of the inconsistencies, all of the ideas like Paul, Paul advocating violence or Paul's treatment of women, things like that, which appeared, you know, as some scholars would say, quite frankly, we wish that uh, some scribe in the past had lost that section mm -hmm. of the writing. You know, uh, we'd feel better about it. But 
the, the more I thought about it, I realized that, you know, Christianity, I don't think has ever presented itself as a full-fledged philosophy, so to speak. It doesn't pride itself in uh, logic or rational thinking. It actually means a whole lot more as a discipline. So what, what that means to me is when I read these texts, what, I, what I'm looking at is someone who 2,000 years ago was devoting themselves towards a particular type of form of living, a disciplined form of living. So for me, as I do speak as someone of faith, who, and what I mean by that is I'm someone who has chosen faith. Some of my best friends uh, are agnostic and or and or atheist and and basically the difference between them is that I'm agnostic also but I chose to believe uh, I have chosen that uh, as a discipline of life and so for instance my my prayer life is based not on any type of awareness of how prayer might work but it's actually based on just the discipline of it and actually going through the motions and the ceremonies and the ritual of it is actually made uh, unbelievable impacts upon my life. Mm. So, uh, at one level, it's uh, my faith has been valuable because I've tried to see the ideas that they were talking about 2,000 years ago and practice them to see what it might mean in my life. The other thing that, uh, another way it's impacted me is when I look at uh, Paul's understanding of some of his concepts, some of these ideas, I think, are Actually, um, really timely ideas that we know nothing about them. Like Paul's under, uh, even now we don't know anything about them. Paul's understanding of the spirit, for instance. I had come to the conclusion in my research of the book that Paul understood spirit in the sense of like wind. And, and if you look at Greek, the language that Paul wrote in, the word spirit could be translated as wind or breath. And when you just take that idea alone, what that means is. Paul's understanding of God was that God is this pervasive, everywhere being. Uh, what, what did that mean to Paul? It meant that God was as fundamentally of nature and part of everything that we see as anything else. And because I live in such a uh, you know, post-Descartes era where I've split body and soul, body and spirit are always separated it realized to me, no, Paul has them fundamentally merged. And so uh, I see the stars, but from a position of faith, I also see God, also see God's handiwork mm-hmm. and his constant presence, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So the, the text continued to inspire me uh, from the point of view of faith. It might be a little bit different than, <laughs> than before I started all of this, but and it's something that I know that actually did choose in, in spite of the fact that there was so much doubt and insecurity uh, about God. Uh, it actually helped me to realize that, no, I, I think this is something I want to put my trust in. If that makes any sense. That's beautiful. It does. And I want to ask you just one last question before we go. And it, you mentioned about kind of the, those dry spells, and especially when you get to reading the Bible critically, like you've been doing, you get to these these passages where there's discrepancies, there's some odd things, there's some things that Paul says that are uh, we don't agree with. And I'm kind of curious, like, as you encountered those difficult passages, you don't have to specify any one of them, but as you've encountered these complex or passages that you don't agree with at all, how do you kind of read that 
today? That's a that's a good good question. Good thought. Um, I think that when when we when we look at some of these uh, difficult texts, I think that we have to. It, it all has to do with the way we view God and God's activity. It, so what am I saying? It, it boils down to faith. What you choose to believe about these events, and it's not that I'm not saying that I've pulled my faith out of thin air, but I'm saying that these are ideas that we have that we have to. We're trying to wrap our minds around, try to understand them, and and in particular, we're trying to understand how God could could have given a text to humans that clearly have uh, flawed ideas within them, and uh, flawed in the sense of what we know about human biology and things like that. Well, I think that, to me anyway, it boils down to the way we view God. Uh, when I was growing up as a child, um, I thought of it kind of like if I, if I stepped out of line with God, that he was likely to take a, some type of physical object and hit me for it, and it might possibly kill me, you know. And so, sort you know, I think the metaphor we usually use is that lightning would strike us. You know? Mm-hmm. So that was my view of God when I was growing up. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me from from my studies that God, it was really more like God was sitting uh, next to me while I played in a sandbox and I was trying to build things and I would mess up. And God was just humored by the entire process as like a loving father. And so... All of a sudden, I realized that if God is viewing me like a child in a sandbox, that means all of my discoveries to God would be magnificent to him. He's probably thrilled that I'm even curious about these things. So, you know, so how that impacted my understanding of reading of Scripture was all of a sudden it realized that all of this was basically a meditation upon God's writings. And the fact that I was even curious about what it might meant, I could, I just could imagine God actually getting tickled uh, and excited about the fact that I wanted to understand those texts, and that I was digging into them deeply enough to realize that they had problems. And all of a sudden, it, the the greater truth that came out of this was is that it occurred to me that if these things are God's writings. God did it in the same way he has done everything as told in Scripture. There's always some type of cooperation between humans and God. So everything God has ever done seems to have been some, you know, or most of the things, some type of cooperation with humanity. You know, all the way back to the uh, uh, promises that he gave to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that I'll give you all of these children and you'll be a great nation. God didn't have to do it that way. There's no reason at all he had to do that. But part of the story of Scripture is God is always trying to work with people. And the other thing that I noticed is that the people that God always worked with were just like me, extremely fallacious. Uh, they're, they're always making this type of mistake or that. And all of a sudden I realized that this is part of the process where God is using people who are far from perfect and then it occurred to me at that level, oh, even the writing of Scripture is the same thing. He's working with people. And uh, and so it's kind of like when I read any text of Scripture, just like you could take anybody that you know that you work with or anybody in your family. Uh, when you live with people enough or you work with people enough, 
within a day's time, you could take one or two of the 100 ideas that they put forward to you and you could pin them to the wall with it, right? It's a very ungracious way to treat people. And then it occurred to me that some of the things that Paul says are very difficult and are they are offensive. But in this case, we're pinning somebody to the wall from 2,000 years ago. There's a lot about the world in 2,000 years ago that I'm going to have a lot of problems with. Maybe that's an ungracious way of reading the text. Uh, I mean, we could do it to Shakespeare, couldn't we? We could do it to mm-hmm. any writer um, and really say they messed up on this one. Well, at this point, to me, it's not about overshadowing or covering over what they said. It's a matter of saying, yeah, they did. Uh, but there's a lot of things that, you know, they could have done wrong, too. I, I see it. We can talk about it. That's fine. Especially when those things have impacted modern Christendom, right? Mm-hmm. We have to work through that. That doesn't mean, though, overall, that we have to uh, ignore the text or the significance of them. We just kind of point it out as we see it and say, okay, we've advanced past this. Right. Um, right. That's kind of the way I've ended up dealing with some of these things. Yeah, I, I love that. What, what, a, what a beautiful perspective. And I, I love the example of the um, you gave about being in the sandbox. Uh, what a yeah. what a beautiful illustration of we're all in the sandbox together trying to figure this out and trying to read this book and yeah. uh, figure out what this is all meaning. So thank you. Um, and I'm so sorry. Do you have one last question? And it was actually kind of it's kind of a fun one because um, okay. at the end of Galatians uh, chapter six verse eleven, Paul says, "See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand." And I was really curious about how you. That's such a weird piece to have in a letter and i was curious like your your uh, your take on that two 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 possibilities uh one is paul has bad vision <laughs> um if you read all of paul's letters what you find out pretty quickly is paul didn't write most of them and what i mean by that is he actually had somebody writing it down for him and we know this for a doubt because at the end of a lot of his letters he'll kind of tip his hand on this like in the book of romans at the end of the book of Romans, which we know Paul wrote because the very first verse says that he wrote it. At the very end, I think it's Romans 16:23. it says, I, Tertius, wrote this with my hand, and Tertius is the name of some person. Well, we know Paul didn't write most of his letters. Why he didn't write them, we don't know. Uh, we have indication to think he had bad eyesight, based on several verses where he talks about it. That's one possibility. It's basically, he had somebody write the letter for him. He dictated it. But at the very end, he actually wrote, see what large letters I'm writing this. <laughs> so they knew that it was from him. You know, the, the other the other idea is just merely for rhetorical effect. It was kind of like at the very end of the letter, Paul may have been using all caps to say, if you don't listen to this letter, you know, you're screwed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so that's the other option, you know. So it's one of the two, and I've never been able to make up my mind. I, I used I like to think that. that he couldn't see well, but now I've, I'm tending to think, no, he, it's just for rhetorical effect. <laughs> Maybe it's both. I don't know. I like that. All caps, emojis. Fire, fire, fire. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Well, Dr. Barrier, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Delgado Podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed learning from Dr. Barrier about his academic journey, learning about the Apostle Paul, and ways scholars have understood the book of Galatians. Next week, we're going to chat with Dr. Walter Moberly, an English theologian and professor in the Department of Theology and Biblical Interpretation at Durham University, about ways to read and understand some of the puzzling Old Testament stories and how we should think about some of the ancient views on war and God. And before we go, I wanna share three quick takeaways that I wanna remember from our conversation with Dr. Barrier. Number one, sometimes we might be tempted to toss out the Bible or wanna cancel Paul the Apostle entirely because of some of his ancient views. Dr. Barrier challenges us to study the Bible critically and to continue questioning those passages that don't make sense to us, but also to read with empathy. This means being able to learn to appreciate the beautiful aspects of these ancient writings, and also to think critically about why certain authors thought the way they did. Number two, studying the Bible takes time, and that's a luxury that many of us don't have. Dr. Barrier shared some helpful study tools and commentaries to help us navigate biblical texts in a timely way. You know, we're not alone in our journey to study the Bible, and there are countless academic resources written to help us. And remember, Dr. Barrier says to keep yourself open to the latest research on the Bible, which can provide us with added insight into the culture, wording, and background on biblical texts. And number three, anytime we're critically reading the Bible means we're probably going to end up with more questions than answers. And that's part of the beauty and mystery of the Bible. It's the reason why the Bible has been passed down throughout the ages and discussed and debated by various religious traditions. Studying the Bible will draw you into this ancient dialogue and debate, which can be an exhilarating experience. So this week's growth challenge is around finding a project that maybe you've let sit for too long and reactivating it. Dr. Barrier spent 12 years researching and writing about Paul's letter to the Galatians. It took him that long because he wanted to carefully think through the ways to understand that ancient letter. And also, he was in the middle of raising his young family, which obviously took priority. His latest book took a lot of patience to write. And so this week's challenge is to think about a project that is meaningful to you. Something that you might have started a while back, but you never finished because life got in the way. So what is it? What is that project? What is that thing that you started and you promised yourself you'd get back to, but you just never got a chance? And maybe it's something that you want to get back to again. What is that project? What is that thing, that passion that you want to get back to? Let me know. You can message me on Instagram or Twitter at Dogata Podcast. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help the show get more visibility. Thank you so much and take care. Let's talk next week. Thank you.